sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and how's it? Welcome back to the show. This is Moving the Needle podcast. I'll be your host, Andrew Needling. If you're new to the show, hope you go back in the archives and check out some of the awesome guests I've had up until now. I appreciate all the reviews, the ratings I've been getting. It really goes a long way. All the direct messages you've been sending me, I read all those, try to respond to them all, keep them coming. Keep sending me that feedback, good or bad. Love hearing from you guys. It's been an awesome journey, this podcast world. Now, this week, we've got none other than Josh Carlson. He's a professional EWS mountain bike racer from Australia. I was teammates with him when I was on Giant Factory Off-Road back in the day. It was so awesome when I first met this guy. We get into some of the stories, but he's known as the frother. It's an Aussie slang word for super excited just loves life, loves riding, comes from a motocross background. So we jump around, we get into all those things. He's now going to focus his attention on the e-bike version of the EWS. So that's pretty interesting. We all know e-bikes are here to stay. I've got one myself. They are so fun. So guys, really awesome episode. Thanks again for tuning in. Share it with a friend if you enjoyed it and uh, enjoy the show. All right, podcast fans. Former teammate of mine, he is, he's known as the frother, which I want to get into, but uh, it's Josh Carlson, comes from a motocross background, then he went XC, I'm going to dig into that, that's not really the route you should be going after moto, but we'll forgive him for that. Josh, welcome to the show, I, I, it sounds like off air you've got a bit of lubricant, so this could be, could be pretty fun. Yeah, we've got a bit of podcast lubricant, always makes it entertaining. Yeah, so Josh is in Australia. I'm in South Africa. So I think 9 a.m., but they say it's 5 p.m. somewhere in the world. So maybe I should go crack a beer. Oh, it'd be mad if you didn't, really. I mean, you could have a little cheeky espresso something, a bit of Baileys or something in there. <laughs> hey, <clears throat> I'm retired. You're not. You, you, you've, you've kept it going. Some people say you've retired using an e-bike, which we'll jump into later. But oh, first and foremost... The, the frother, you're known as the frother, you use the word the frother. I know Aussies have some amazing slang and basically most of my mates, especially in the early years, were Australian before you jumped on, on the team. Talk to me about that. Where the hell does that come from? The frother. Well, I guess like the Australian slang definitely has something to do with it. Um, when I arrived in America in 2011, I guess it was, um, I was frothing on everything. So frothing was like my hashtag, you know, it was like my calling card. And then when I met Carl Decker and stayed at his place a lot in, in Oregon, um, him and Tina started calling me the frother. And then uh, it just kind of like everyone would call me the frother from Australia. Then it took off in America. And, you know, uh, you know, the long story short is a frother is just someone who's overly excited and animated about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed to uh it seemed to stick and it seemed to suit me to a T. <laughs> you think, you think. No, no, absolutely. Bit. And that uh, is infectious. Uh it was tough to be in a bad mood or grumpy about anything when you were around. But you're right. I mean, when you came over, everything was new in America. I remember that. I mean, America for for anyone that hasn't been. The first meal that we had together <laughs> talking about eggs and fruit. 
<laughs> Are you bringing that up already? Well, I don't know. There's probably a few stories we could bring up already, but maybe we'll just wait till the lubricant goes down and until we get into the Vegas stories. <laughs> <laughs> the Vegas stories. <laughs> but there is a fruit story. The um, I think we're both pretty dedicated to our craft and the training and stuff. So I was like a sponge, you know, and, and you, you seem to come from this XE background. So the context of the story is, one of our earlier breakfasts before Sea Otter, it might have been the race. So I was maybe even more tense that, that morning as you can be. And you maybe. took a look over, but in a serious, your serious voice, not your frother voice, and said, either are you going to eat the fruit before your uh, scrambled eggs or after? Uh, I said, I don't understand the question. He said, be careful if you eat it before, whichever it was. And I was like, what are you on about? And then you went into some health nutrition bollocks about what it was going to do to my stomach if I did the fruit first or whichever way around and I was so gullible at the stage because we didn't know each other that well and I was just a sponge for information because I didn't I didn't follow nutrition as hard as you did so I was taking your word as gospel <laughs> this is at 7 30 in the morning <laughs> yeah and I'm busy trying to get ready for a race I don't have time for sarcasm <laughs> Uh, it kind of set the tone, though, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You only tease and give person shit if you actually like the guy. Otherwise, you don't really have time for them. That's a pretty exactly. Aussie way. That's probably why the South Africans and Aussies get along, I guess. I, I reckon that's a big part of it, for sure. I don't think I've met many South Africans that I haven't got on with or, or laughed with. I think the Dutchies in Europe, um, they have a similar kind of attitude and a t kind of humour. Um, and, man, most, most Australian people, like, if you... Uh, if you hear something nice coming out of their mouth to you as a friend, it's probably a bit concerning. <laughs> you know, the, the general, the general Aussie way is to you know take the piss and have a laugh, and it's all tongue in cheek. And obviously, you've got to respect your boundaries and you know the person. If you know the person, you can have a good laugh about it. And that that particular day was, um, I think it was egged on by Joe. I think because I, I thinking back, I don't think I really had the guts to say anything to you because you were Andrew Neepling, you were Needles, right? Like you were a bit on the team, you're a big deal. And I was like this greenhorn uh, frother from Australia. <laughs> and at the time I was still racing cross. No, I was racing in enduro, but uh, I think I did the cross country. I think you were doing it all yeah, at that stage. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think you got egged on by Joe. Joe was like, hey, you should uh, should say something to Needles about his breakfast. <laughs> and then it was that and it, whatever it was. <laughs> and obviously I was just talking out my ass at the time. <laughs> yeah, but you had the, you had the lingo and uh, it went on for a good 15, 20 minutes because I was already halfway through the food. I think that's what it was. And you were like, did you eat the, <laughs> did you eat the fruit first or whatever it was? And I was already balls deep in my breakfast in my own little world. I don't really and we weren't time. at the same table. We yeah. were like side by side. And I, I, you're, I remember I'd turn around and we start eating and we were giggling and kind of forgot. And then you had turned around and kept eating, but obviously you started to think about it. And you turned around, you're like, what? Wait, I, I, ate, I ate the eggs first. What, what does it do? I'm going to race today. What? Is, is my stomach going to explode? What's happening? Yeah, it's it was just, it's, but it's also classic like race day nerves as well. But Josh, for the, the 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 listeners and the podcast fans out there that might be newer to to your name and the frother, 
Can you just maybe catch them up on your history? So from Australia, but you come from a motocross background and, and wanted to take that to the highest level and some injuries and budgets, which I want to ask about because motorsport is tough financially to make it. It's not always the guy that works the hardest or most talented, doesn't always get to the top. So yeah, like catch us up on your, your brief background before mountain bikes came into to the world. Yeah, so I guess I was... Um... I guess I kind of fell into mountain bikes, not, not necessarily by accident, but um, prior to 2006, <laughs> I didn't really know mountain bikes existed. Um, obviously, I'd ridden mountain bikes for training and ridden up the bush and ridden for fun. And I'd ridden a bicycle since I was a little kid, um, ridden a mountain bike for a few years just as basic training for motocross. Um, but yeah, I was racing motocross through my junior career, um, up until, up t- until I was 16 in Australia and then turned pro well, turned senior, I should say. And then in Australia, you go C grade, B grade, A grade. And once you turn A grade, that's when you can race the elite class or the pro class. So my whole goal as a kid, uh, racing from when I was 10 years old or 11 years old to, uh, uh, when I pretty much stopped racing in 2005, was to be a pro motocross rider. You know, my dad was a pro motocross rider. I grew up racing motocross. That was the goal and the dream. Uh, we had some contacts in a in Australian motorsport to to go down that direction, and I started getting some decent results. I was, you know, the local dude <laughs> sort of thing in my hometown and and the tracks around us, and uh, you know, on the podium, winning second, third at state level. Uh, I was top twenty to top fifteen to just outside of the top ten nationally. Uh, depending on the track. Um, so it was all going well. I had some support from Honda Australia and some uh, local bike shops. And obviously my dad and I put everything we had into it. My dad was a landscaper, is a landscaper. Um, and we fully chased the dream. We traveled around the country racing Australian motocross races, uh, stadium motocross races, which are like a hybrid of motocross and supercross in the middle of, um, you know, soccer field or football stadiums or uh, dog track racing stadiums, horse track racing stadiums. Uh, and the Supercross series as well. So that was our that was our goal. That was my dream until 2005. I had a couple of injuries, which weren't that bad, um, but they were just enough to like put a bit of stress on us to be right at that point that comes to everybody in motocross that uh, you really have to financially commit. So like it was one thing to have the talent and the speed and the support locally, and you know you're a fast locally, and I had good times, good support, good people to train with. But to go to that next level, to get it into that top 10, you need a bunch of like financial support to have the right bikes, to have enough gear, have the money to train. Um, you know, really, it really takes a lot of effort. So I, I think a lot of people don't quite understand that looking out from the outside, looking into the motocross world, um, especially in America, like the, the financial commitment that those families make from an early age is pretty extraordinary. So anyway, long story short, 2005, I had another injury, and it was like my third injury in pretty much as many years. Nothing major. It was a broken wrist. Um, and it was like I had another three bikes coming from Honda Australia that we had to make the call on. And I had a broken wrist, and it's like, ah, oh, do we want to commit to this? Dad's business wasn't going too crash hot at the time because we had, you know, supported my racing and traveling around. So we pulled the pin, sold my bikes, um, and carried on. Went and got a real job. <laughs> went and got a landscaping job um, at the local council, went and got my landscaping trade, my arboriculture certificates for climbing trees and lopping trees down. Um, 
and then just kind of partied and was a motocross coach for a little while, was a laborer for a little while. And then uh, 2007, um, yeah, my dad said, why don't you go and do a mountain bike race? You know, just a cross-country race over the hill. I just had a, like a cheap $500 bike at the time. Uh, go and do a mountain bike race, see how you like it. So I literally rocked up stone cold on a $500 bike and, um, you know, I ended up second on the day and I won the open men's for that day. And uh, I was just like, whoa, this is actually pretty fun. <laughs> you know, I was riding way above the capability of the bike. Um, but it was a really, really fun day. You know, it was an hour and a half, two-hour cross-country race, and I just really enjoyed it. And it was like I think the thing that triggered me was it wasn't about the machinery or the bike or the um, what engine I had or what kind of start I could get or how much – money I could invest into my training program. If I wanted to get fitter and faster, it was up to me and I had to go and ride more. And the only fuel I needed at the time was, uh, food. <laughs> so that was the biggest instigator for me to, to come across the mountain bikes. And that's what really hooked me. And then I bought a giant Anthem in 2007, I think it was maybe 2008. And, uh, to be honest, that's the only bike I've ever bought since, um, 2008 started racing some state races, some, national under 23 cross country races. I raced a national cross country, uh, event under 23 in Queensland. And, um, I lapped second place in the under 23s and the guys were like, look, you have to move up. <laughs> you, you can't, there's no point you stay in here. <laughs> so, uh, the next race I raced, um, I raced elite and then it just kind of took off from there. I got some support from my local bike shop, Spearman Cycles, which is a giant shop. Uh, that evolved into some support from Giant Australia. Uh, 2009, I started to take it pretty serious and, you know, lost a bunch of weight, did a bunch of proper training, started training on the road, racing road criteriums. And uh, 2010, I went to Europe to race some cross-country World Cups. So, um, yeah, I was going down a very different path to where I am right now <laughs> early on. And then, uh, yeah, I guess fast forward to 2011, I moved to Colorado, lived in Colorado for six months and had a had a crash in a bike park and broke my wrist and my collarbone and had to come home with my tail between my legs and, and kind of reassess. And then, uh, yeah, it was like, well, if I wanted to have a crack at this, I'd chatted to Giant. I'd heard about Enduro. Enduro was coming to America in 2012. Um, it's going to be a new format. I dabbled in some Super D in 2011 with the Giant team and made, <laughs> made a pretty big impression, I think, on Adam and Carl and Frank and, and those guys. Um, and then, yeah, I was intrigued by this enduro format. You know, cross-country was good, but I was a bigger dude. So I had to be exceptionally strong and powerful and, and different to perform at that. You know, when you're six foot one and 80 kilos, that's a lot of power to compete with a 65-kilo Nino Schurter or someone like that, you know. So enduro came about, and it kind of ticked all the boxes that I was into. Um, I enjoyed the downhills. I was super fit. I love going fast. I was always riding bikes that were uh, – my riding capabilities were more than the bike's capabilities, which got me in trouble a lot. Do <laughs> you think, ri <laughs> I think riding was... capabilities or uh, attitude or the motocross background, riding <laughs> riding over your capabilities and the bike's capabilities? <laughs> yeah, all of it. Mainly the, bikes, the bike was quite capable, to be honest. But I was riding a four-inch Anthem, giant Anthem, uh, as fast as you should be riding a Glory or a Rain. <laughs> <laughs> apparently it didn't handle it you know what what's what's interesting but i don't know if you're going to be able to go this far back and and and, and uh, unpack the feelings so 
you have made it to the pro ranks of a sport maybe when you were a kid you never thought you would, which is, I think, an incredible story in itself. But at what point, like, was it pretty devastating to have that conversation with your dad or was it just like the universe kind of telling both of you guys, look, it's just not worth worth the sacrifice? Or like, were you pretty gutted as a kid to get a normal job and walk away from motocross and, you'd, you know, you've been looking up to Chad Reed and aspiring to maybe make it to America? That's probably most Aussies' dreams, uh, as was mine as a mountain bike kid going to Worlds and going, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this as a career and hopefully nothing's going to stand in my way. But you you had that early in life and then you had to basically not pause it because you didn't know mountain bikes were coming. You actually just, you know, you went cold turkey, sold all the bikes, got a real job, boozed it up a bit, I guess. But eventually, surely that's not as fulfilling. Yeah, it, w- it was really tough. It was really tough thinking back back to that point. And, and we had a deal lined up with Honda and I had results and I had support from the local motocross community. I had sponsors and you know, financial backing and dad was committed. And it was, it was just like, I was going to miss out on the 2005 Australian Supercross season. Uh, We had a couple of bikes that we were building up to be ready to race. And it was just, you really had to take that big financial step next. You needed the bikes, you needed the suspension, you needed the motor work, you needed that extra little bit. Cause I was just riding stock bikes at the time and to ride, um, you know, that much four to five times a week, to ride motocross, that's pretty much a hundred, essentially a hundred to two hundred dollars a day. When you look at all the maintenance, yeah. The what do you think a fuel, season? What do you think a season thumb suck would have been? A full season, like hundreds of thousands of oh. Aussie. Uh, I don't. Well, for us, it wasn't hundreds of thousands of Aussies. Like we we were we were probably, I don't know. I mean, dad dad paid for it all at the time, so you were kind of. I was only 16, 17, 18, so I was unaware of the cost. Dad would just pay cash, swipe the card, you know, I was, I was oblivious. I was just racing and training and figuring out how to go faster. Can I hit fourth gear through those woods? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I guess I was oblivious to that. And I was training with some some guys around here in, in Wollongong, Jay and Ryan Mama. They were on the KDM factory team. They were the, they were the kings. Jay was winning everything. He was one of the winningest uh, Australian motocross, supercross riders we've ever had outside of Chad Reed and, He's one of the best. So I was training with them a lot and you were kind of oblivious um, to that. At the same time, I was also aware of what it took to go to that next step because I could see it in front of me. I could see the factory team. I could see the mechanics. I could see the parts. I could see how much they were riding. And, and you know, one day in particular that stands out in my mind was we were racing, we are training motocross, pouring rain. Track was muddy as can be. And all the guys were out there putting mud tires on and solid rotors and getting – like handguards getting out there ready to do motos. And I was kind of standing under the tent thinking, man, this is good training, but this is going to cost so much money. (laughs) Like, is this really going to help me? Like I'm going to burn through brake pads and rotors and cook my bike and I'm going to ruin all my seals. Dad's going to have to rebuild my suspension and my linkages and uh, and I've got to clean my riding gear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know it's not like the days of now being a factory athlete when you have 10 or 15 sets of clothes if it gets that bad you throw them in the, throw them away or you know if they don't look good you get rid of them then you only had three sets of clothes or maybe two sets of boots and they were all cooked and wet from the day before um so yeah i guess uh it, it was pretty hard to put that dream away and and realize that 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 wasn't going to happen um or I guess I was young enough to kind of take a break, 
go and be a laborer, go and party for a little bit, go and be a normal person. So that helped and it helped distract me a little bit. And at the time I was only 20, 20, 19, 20, 21. Um, so it was kind of like, it was devastating, but I guess I hit it by trying to be a normal person for a while, going to make some money, going to work with dad, uh, going partying, uh, being a normal person. And then once I got over that, I went and did some motocross coaching. I was on the verge of becoming a full-time motocross coach with a coaching company that was based out of Ballina. Um, you know, and it almost, in 2006, it almost kicked off again. I got offered a ride with a Yamaha shop uh, up near Queensland. I got offered a job up there that would support my riding. And it was almost that, that little ticket was dangling in front of me to go back. Um, I started to ride mountain bikes a little bit for fun. And it was kind of like, I just didn't really, I didn't, I didn't necessarily lose the drive, but I just didn't feel like investing everything to go down that path again. You know, I went and got my landscape trade, like I mentioned, spent the next four years doing that and spent the next four years racing mountain bikes. And to me, to go and race mountain bikes was such a more feasible option <laughs> than racing motocross. And you mentioned before, yeah, going from motocross to cross country doesn't make sense. Most uh, motocross guys, like Aaron Gwynn, for example, or a bunch of the guys you see around the world, you know, they go from downhill, they go from uh, motocross to downhill because it's similar. It's the speed and the jumps and the bikes and blah, blah, blah. Well, and but it's the, obviously the honest, cooler, Josh. I mean, obviously it's a little cooler. And it's, and it's, it's just, it's way cooler, right? Like I was traveling the national series with Emil Cavalier and all the downhill guys. So like I didn't even hang out with cross country people because like this sounds bad, but I just didn't like it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I liked the vibe. I liked the people of the downhill world. I liked watching the boys. I liked, you know, shuttling, and I liked riding downhill. It just the honest truth was the only bike I had was a cross country bike, and I just started riding it, and then I just happened to be really good at it. If I had a jumped on a downhill bike, who knows what would have happened. <laughs> and then the bike that I bought a couple hospital time, visits from what I can understand <laughs> the the, uh, the bike I bought at the time because I was I didn't know I bought an Anthem so it was a four inch dual suspension mountain bike I could pedal it I could you know in my mind I could ride downhill on it so I did and it was obviously not capable for the speeds that I was going <laughs> there's a funny story of the local shop heard I was doing this big step down up the bush and it like it's pretty big, I guess. At the time, it was pretty big. It was definitely way bigger than it than an anthem should handle. And they heard about it, and they're like, "Look, don't do that. <laughs> it's not a good idea. If we if we hear you're doing that, and you come in here with a broken frame, we're not going to help you." And I was like, "Well, it's okay. It was fine." They're like, "Yeah, it's not fine. That's a thirty foot drop. <laughs> it's not designed for that." In Lycra with my seat up. I guess it was before <laughs> dropper posts. I um, I've got a similar similar memory comes to mind. Definitely my my late dad driving around to all the nationals and oblivious to the cost of getting us to Worlds. I mean, I just heard later in life it it went on the mortgage of the house, which I, I really appreciate. And and you are oblivious to it, and you don't always appreciate it. But um, at least you're aware of it in some of those testing sessions. But we had when I started riding, it was hard tails, fully rigids, and, and we would do both, um, XC and downhill, luckily at our race series. But people would come to them because we were also p riding above our pay grade 
our skill level and the bikes level. And everyone came to my dad. They didn't say get him and they didn't say, hey, you need to get a better bike. They came and they said, you need to get some more protective gear for these kids because they're clearly not going to slow down. And the bikes aren't really like evolved yet, but just get them some protective gear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I guess for the, the cross country world, like we, my dad and my mom and dad didn't come watch me race for, for ages. Like the first race I went and did that I just found on the internet was with my girlfriend at the time, wife now. Um, we just packed up the car, put my bike in the back and just rolled over there. And she hung out in the car for two hours while I raced this event. <laughs> we had no idea what to do. I had a massive crash riding way too fast. And then I come across the line and like, I remember sitting on the starting line and there was a dude in an iron horse carbon rig that was $8,000. And the other side was some giant NRS carbon rig that was, you know, another $8,000. And I'm, I'm in joggers. I got joggers on. I got a visor under my helmet. I got board shorts and a cotton lycra, a cotton cross country jersey, looking like an absolute kook. <laughs> Took off at a million miles an hour. Whole shot of the thing. The only guy to beat me was John Hardwick, who was the editor of um, Australian Mountain Bike Magazine and a proper weapon. And uh, he beat me into the first corner, and I was like, "All right, I may as well follow him." So I followed him for a bit, and then he got me. And uh, I had a massive crash, and blah blah blah. And anyway. It just was an, an hilarious, hilarious day. <laughs> and, I mean, and that was the, the catalyst to a career in, in mountain biking now, and you've done technically, you could call it three disciplines now that you got going to, to e-bikes. But surely that passion and, and drive you had for motocross, like, you know, once you started getting results, must have just, like, relit the fire? Big time. Big time. Yeah, once, once I started getting some results and uh, – my strength from the start was my, my downhill speed, my ability to ride a bike faster than anybody else. And I had to learn how to pedal and work on my engine. So that was a huge, a huge key to my success. You know, and even uh, <laughs> racing cross-country World Cups in Europe, like I could ride all the downhill technical sections with my seat up, no worries. Like I could do the jumps. I remember doing this like step-down real technical feature in Champeray pretty easily. And I loved the technical track in Val and, and uh, even racing in, in America in 2011, um, I loved the technical tracks. I was really, really good at it. And I was quite – I developed to be quite powerful as well. So it was quite a volatile mix of like wild speed and downhill skill with real massive power. <laughs> so uh, it took a few years for that to mellow out. And when Enduro came about, and that's where Super D – really really appealed to me in 2011 we did the downeyville classics uh we did the ashland super d we did a bunch of the the oregon races and uh so tell the listeners a little bit about that sort of before ews because some listeners are new to mountain biking i mean ews is pretty popular now but before that there was kind of longer distance one day stage e downhill thingy majiggies with lots of climbing as well yeah like well how long with the average of these super D's or a downhill classic? So the, the easiest example was the Ashland super D in Oregon. Um, it was like a 45 minute downhill run, but it had, you know, sections of, of, um, fire road pedaling. It had like a four minute climb, uh, after the first fire road descent. So you'd start at the top of the ski hill, do this massive 70, 80 K an hour fire road down, then go into a three minute climb. Then after that, it was just like single track all the way down from Mount Hood, 
to the to the valley floor of Ashland, and that yeah. was unreal. Like a forty five. It's almost like the mega avalanches, but you were time trial, right? Yeah, yep, yeah. So this was yeah time trial set up rather than uh, mass start. Yep. And Downeyville was a Saturday cross country race, so you'd race up this big exposed gnarly fire road climb for an hour. And then you'd do the one-hour descent. So it was about a 50-minute descent. That It was all undulating, but it was predominantly downhill for an hour. And it was wicked. It was so fun. And um, I was on the podium for my first Downeyville race in 2011. I was third, I think, second or third behind Carl Decker. And then on the Sunday, I was like this, you know, underdog kind of, who is this dude? He could frother. win this downhill race. Yeah, I was the frother. The frother. <laughs> with all those guys and i'd scared carl with a bunch (laughs) bunch of stuff that i'd done already and broken bikes and crashed here and crashed there and um anyway needless to say i never finished a downeyville downhill (laughs) 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 my my, uh my bike never finished it i destroyed a derailleur or destroyed wheels and tires and and just uh, it just couldn't handle what what speed i was doing on it and i wasn't smart enough to make it happen I was just like point and shoot and send it. You know, it's a downhill race. Get to the bottom as fast as possible. Yeah, and I guess on a motocross bike, your body's going to break or your skill level's going to be the deterrent versus the bike. So it's tough for you. You've got in the back of the mind like, well, if I want to go faster, I just twist throttle harder and hang on. But, yeah, you have to strategize. You have to keep your bike in one piece, especially 45 minutes, rocks, punches, derailers. So yeah, your kind of uh, eagerness frother got got the better. That's interesting. So you had to learn that side of bicycles as well. Even in enduro, even though the bikes are built so well, you still got to keep them in one piece. Big time. I think that was that was something like for me. I'd, I'd before uh, twenty twelve, I'd never ridden a bike bigger than a four inch cross country bike. So like going into America, racing enduro, I went over there with some support from Giant Australia. They backed me to go over there with some financial support and. And uh, my wife and I, well, like I said, girlfriend at the time, wife now, we made the call to move to Canada to chase the dream. So for me, I was moving over there to race enduro and jump on bikes that I've never even ridden before. Like to me, a five-inch bike felt like a downhill bike. So then I get on a a bigger one, like a six-inch rain, for example, 160 mil travel, 170 mil travel. And at the time, they, they weren't nearly as capable as what they are now. But to me, that was like a full-on downhill bike. So that was part of the evolution of enduro. So in Europe, they had enduro for years. So Super D was these really long downhill races that were real popular in America. Um, They had the mega avalanche races in Europe. Then they evolved into enduro. So enduro in America kicked off in 2012 kind of properly, like with an official North American series and an Oregon enduro series uh, before the EWS started in 2013. So for me to go over there and jump on like a, a trance, which was the five-inch, you know, 130, 140 mil, 150 mil um, trail bike of Giant was just like, whoa, I can go so much faster, <laughs> which obviously led to more catastrophic crashes <laughs> and moments. If if I'm not picking it up, the listener's definitely picking up a, a little bit of uh, what, what's the word yet? There's a common denominator. It's you riding, uh, uh, well, maybe with your frother, over eager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not over your skill, Absolutely. but maybe over eager. Way too over eager. Yeah, the red mist would just descend, <laughs> and I would just send it to oblivion. 
And then everyone's like, dude, slow down. It's like, no, no, no I've got to go faster. <laughs> but that's your, but that's, that's totally your character and your attitude, isn't it? I'm more like calculated risk and you're almost like risk. And then I'm going to find the line and then bring it back a bit, which they are though. That's like basically the two different writings. To, well, there's many, but yeah, those are like the polar opposites, which is pretty funny. But what's interesting, and I didn't even quite figure that out in the prep for this, you were learning enduro switching disciplines at the same time that the you know, mountain bike industry was forming EWS, this new discipline. So you were kind of learning at the same time that everyone was learning, which is pretty interesting. Um, probably good time yeah, so as well. You know, teams were investing in timing. EWS. They didn't know how it's going to work. They didn't know who's going to perform. And uh, you you literally kind of bet everything and moved the whole family, well, f f girlfriend at the time, and, and then it would be family to Vancouver. I mean, what was that thought process and, and emotion like to, okay, well, we're here in Vancouver. We better make this work. Oh, dude. And it, it sounds good in, in paper. And we just had some conversations kind of recently that, um, you know, from the outside, it looks quite easy. And it looks like we had a bit of a golden ticket. We had a bit of a silver spoon and it sounds great. <laughs> but the, the reality is, man, it was so difficult. <laughs> And yeah, like you said, we literally packed up. We had we both had really good jobs. My wife's a school teacher, so you know, backstory is girlfriend at the time. We're married now, uh, kids living back in Australia. So it's the same girl who was with me the whole time from the very beginning, from that very first cross country race in two thousand and seven or whatever it was, two thousand and six to now. So it's it's a pretty epic journey. Um, so yeah, to like we we had an insight with Giant. Like obviously, I made an impression in 2011, and it was kind of like I I went home with a with a silly crash at a bike park that once again I was dirt jumping on a cross country bike with my seat up. That you know I was just yeah I'll jump it, no worries. <laughs> obviously, it was a bad idea. <laughs> that ended up in a hospital hospital bed. Um, so we went home with my tail between my legs, and then it was kind of like if I wanted to make this happen and uh, chase the dream and be a professional athlete. I had to be in North America. Like being in Australia wasn't going to cut it. So we looked into going to Bend. We looked into going to Colorado again. I was living in Boulder, Colorado. So we looked into going to Bend because I knew those guys, Carl and Adam, and a bunch of people in Bend had great times there. We couldn't get into the US. You know, it's really hard, as, as you know, from all those years of doing the visas and blah, blah, blah. Um, so then Vancouver came up. So Vancouver was a reasonably easy option for both of us. I could go there as an athlete. Lisa could go there as a school teacher. Um, there was a lot of opportunities. The writing was apparently fantastic. Um, it evolved into becoming Squamish and Whistler was all there. So it all kind of made sense on paper. So we literally sold our cars, quit our jobs, and we're like, righto, what's the worst that could happen? We'll have a great adventure. We'll move to the other side of the world. and You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least we tried. So we did. And, uh, man, we moved there in April. We went to Sea Otter first. Um, met all the crew. We had all our life <laughs> in a bunch of bags, stuffed into a hotel room in uh, Laguna Seca in Monterey. And then we moved out to Canada. We stayed in a uh, basement suite apartment for a month and it was freezing. We got there by like late April, May, which is still pretty cold and rainy in Vancouver. And we would like, I'd go out training with all the clothes that I had. Like it was freezing cool cold. Stuff. Coming from a cool running style. I was totally that dude. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd come back from a training ride and Lisa didn't have a job yet. And uh, we'd sit in the shower for like an hour, just a boiling hot shower, just thinking like, what have we done? 
Did you have those thoughts, huh? Like, what Heaps. on earth have we done? Heaps. Heaps, man. That was early on. That was early on. Then we found another apartment, uh, which we actually stayed in for the whole, entire time, for the seven years that we were in Vancouver. We stayed in that same apartment, which was cool. And then it went on to, like, we did a bunch of racing. We raced the Oregon Enduro Series, which was the North American Enduro Tour. And uh, we raced some big races. And um, it was all going great, but I, I mechanicaled or crashed or um, broke wheels and destroyed parts at critical times amongst the season. So I lost three of the biggest races of the year uh, from mechanical in Winter Park, um, Whistler, and I think the other one was uh, Hood River maybe. Or, but anyway, I mechanicaled and like I flattered my tyre coming down Whistler, top of the world, doing 90 hit 93 k's an hour and then surprise surprise my wheel just tacoed and didn't handle it when i hit a rock and then uh i won some stages that day and went from hero to zero uh same deal in winter park i won some stages in winter park and i flattered so to me coming fast forward to like august september of uh 2012 i was like man i've blown it like i was leading the north american enduro tour everything was happy days i was winning races and yeah, we're good. And then all of a sudden I was like fifth in the Enduro Tour, the North American line. I was, I think I won the, the Oregon Enduro Series, but I was like, man, I've blown this. And I started looking up jobs in Vancouver to be a landscaper. And my, my wife had, didn't have a job yet. You she was getting not, offers. Really? But yeah. And, we, and it was to the point where like um, we were running out of money because like we just went over there with savings and we're just like living off the smell of an oily rag and counting our groceries on the on the shopping belt and like well do we need a full loaf of bread we can probably save three dollars there and get a half loaf we can just live off no cans shit, of spaghetti man. and that shows and baked you don't know what and, people are going through yeah like you know you just get frozen peas and corn and some pieces of chicken every other night because that was the cheapest meal we could eat for four dollars each um yeah so it was it was pretty real and we had we were renting an apartment so um you know, when we we just bought a car, a seven thousand dollar car, just with cash that we had, that was breaking down every month. So yeah, it wasn't pretty, but it looked great on on paper. Well, I was going to say, I mean, people must have been like, "Oh, he's on Giant, and he's in Vancouver. He must be on this fat salary to afford living in Vancouver." But props to you for for making it work and having the guts to decide yeah i mean i would also pack the bag and be overseas for months on end because you know while the season's on you have to be there yeah and uh, yeah yeah it's the same like you gotta you gotta come from south africa all the way over it's a it's a it's a long trip and the industry's not there the industry's not in australia no i was lucky you know sven and Anke and and so many teammates they if they're listening yeah it's i had so much help without that help i mean not just my parents like before you get the the salary, before you get the actual contract, sometimes you're just on, you know, expenses and bikes, and it's and it's awesome. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, my spoil of a meal was what what are they called? It wasn't the two minute noodles. It was mac and cheese in a box in America. But if I was feeling like I was spoil myself, I'll add a can of tuna. I mean, that's that's what it was back <laughs> then. And I had help from Sven and Anka. Poor Anka, obviously. Most meals was like, you can eat, you know, if you're eating with us. And I was like, I you know, didn't really have much to provide to the meal. And, you know, they, they really took me in. But it's amazing to hear you speak about that because even as teammates, I didn't, you know, you don't speak about those struggles or the internal dialogue you have thinking, shit, I might have lost my ride here. Yeah, for sure. 
And then it come to inner bike in Vegas in when's that? Like October. And I thought it was all over. Um, and then, you know, lucky enough, John, uh, Frank Trotter, um, sat me down. He says, look, we're, we're really happy with what you got going on. And the Enduro world series is coming in 2013. And we want you to be our guy with Adam. And we've got a brand new bike coming, the 27.5 trance, um, bikes coming out next year. And we want you to be a part of it and part of the development. And, uh, we're, we're in. And then that was my first paid deal moving forward. So I got a two year deal and it was like, Oh, thank goodness I can get a full loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, Lisa got a job in, in the city in Vancouver and, and, uh, she got a job as a teaching assistant at a private girls school in the city. And, um, and again, you look at that and then all of a sudden it sounds great, like a private girls school and you got a factory mountain bike ride on Thingo, but like, you know, we wouldn't have been earning, earning 40 grand between us, uh, living overseas with two people and, and, uh, traveling around the world at this stage. So it's really, it's not as, not as lovely as it sounds on paper. <laughs> no, definitely pro pro mountain bike. There's a few guys that make proper money, but a lot of it just is to pay for the expenses or the off season lifestyle and stuff like that. I uh, was that the year we overlapped in Vegas. No wonder we partied so hard. Uh, I have a feeling to be honest, I, I, uh, I can't exactly remember the timeline here, but it was definitely one of the first ones. I think we had a red hot crack the first night and the second night we were both quite happy to just chill. We went to a bar, um, at the place we were staying at, it might've been treasure Island or something. And, um, we just got a couple of cheeky beers at a bar and it was just real casual. It was like 1130 at night. Then all of a sudden the waitress, someone walked out on her bill. So she brought over a bucket of beers for us. So then all of a sudden we had three or four beers to drink each. Hey, and what's, what's the, better the than a beer? A free beer for a South African and Aussie. <laughs> totally, in the middle of Vegas. And then you get a text saying, hey, there's a Sinclair party around the corner. Do you want to come check it out? And we're like, ah, oh, we'll just go and have a look. We'll go and have a drink. We would you network. Know, probably be lame. You've got to network when you're in Vegas. And we got there and it was quiet. We sat in a booth and then Bryn and Jill showed up. And then all of a sudden the place was pumping. It was just the wildest experience. I had a dance-off with Ryan Kondrashoft. Is that the one where Jan Ulrich was there? Do you remember that? I don't know. But the CFO was dancing on the table. The CFO of Stram was dancing on the table with no shirt on. And he had a bunch of the escorts around and <laughs> someone kept asking him to get off the table. Podcast escorts. I don't, well, whatever they were, the models, they weren't escorts. But, yeah, you know, mo- the, the models maybe they were, were the place. before Insta models. <laughs> before Instagram. <laughs> anyway, and it, it just evolved. And then after that, we went to like uh, someone's, it was one of your buddies who won Dirt Jumper of the Year, and he had like bottle service at some club, and we were he was leaving as we were walking in, and it just escalated. Oh, shucks, that might have been the, the Shane, the late Geordie Lynn. I have a feeling we were, no, maybe it, wasn't, maybe it was one of the BMXs. Yeah, that was, that night escalated pretty quick. But I do remember Jan Ulrich, if any of the listeners know the road rider, Jan Ulrich, and he was, looked like a piece of tanned cardboard. Like, should, <laughs> I just vividly remember he was partying very hard. Like, he was not looking good. Yeah. Yeah, I, there was there was a bunch of time travel that night, and stories still pop up from it. And anyway, that was one experience that I remember vividly, and it kind of set the tone for uh, the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, talk to me 
Yeah, EWS. I mean, we were teammates on Giant, but I was on the downhill circuit and you're on the EWS circuit. Can you like help the listener? What are what are some of your fond memories from the EWS tour before we jump into like you going e-bike side and challenges? You know, like the 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 two contrasts of we've spoken about the contrasts of like a pro contract, but it's not always what you think. And then now you're traveling the world learning this new style of racing, learning your own craft, you know, some of the pros and cons, if you will. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey. I mean, um, it's something that constantly evolves. And, and now, not to jump ahead, but now this evolution of e-bikes and the EEWS is pretty similar. It's kind of like a carbon copy as what it was in 2012 and 2013. So when Enduro started, and the EWS started in 2013, there were so many questions about how to train, how to ride, what do you wear? <laughs> like, what is this thing? Is it going to work? Is it silly? Is it too expensive? And e-bikes now are these practically exactly the same scenario. People are wondering if it's going to work, wondering how to race it, wondering what the format's going to be, what bikes do we ride? Um, so from 2013, being at the first ever EWS, like that's that's pretty cool. And I was ninth. Uh, there at the first ever one so I come from nowhere I'd played number 86 or 87 I think it was um, come from nowhere into the top 10 and uh, everyone was just like what who is this dude I went from top 10 burst onto the scene the next race in uh, Val de Lose in France um, it was a two-day race it was the French format at the time which was one practice run straight back up one race run so for me that was super foreign Super, super fun. And uh, I, that red mist came in. I was like, after the first day, I think I was like 29th or something or 30th. And on the second day, you start in your your um, your order. Like wherever you finish on the first day, that's the thing gets reseated. So I was ninth on the first day. Then all of a sudden I went back to 29th. So every person you overtake across the finish line moves you up one position in the overall. So I dropped into that first stage just all tilt absolute ball at the gate classic frother form anyway long story short came down the hill i'd already overtaken four or five people by five minutes into the stage it was a big 15 20 minute stage come down saw the track dip down come down way too fast turns out an avalanche had taken out that part of the hill during the winter or whatever so the track actually turned to the right so the trail that i saw ahead was the trail but there was no ground there anymore. So I come down doing a million, jump this, you know, hip high tree stump. And on the other side, it was a 20 foot drop into a lounge room size hole of rocks, hit the ground, exploded my whole body. Um, season over. So I disappeared. I went from top 10 to where did, where did that Australian guy go? <laughs> disappeared. Straight and this is the first year of my contract as a pro straight to the ambulance. There's a much longer story than involves fan after that, but we, it's a bit dark and dirty, so I don't need to go down that road. But yeah, so that thing was like I had to really rebuild myself coming into 2014 to do it again. And then also I was I had that attitude of I've got to prove myself. I'm not just a crasher or a one hit wonder. I uh, showed up at the first race in Chile in uh, Nevados de Chian in Chile. Was riding extraordinarily fast, super fast, way too fast. <laughs> Had a massive crash in practice on the last stage and the last day of practice before the race. Straight back to hospital. Separated my shoulder, hit my leg so hard it was I bruised my bone and it was pretty gnarly. After that, the team 
Frank and Joe and the whole team sat me down and said, look, you need to slow down. You, you need to finish races and you need to slow down. We understand you're talented. We're, we want you here for the long haul. Slow down. So I had a big uh, talking to. So we showed up to Scotland a few weeks later and I just rode, you know, at like 80% or 60% and came, came in 2015th or something or 20-something. I can't quite remember. So that was a, that was a big, uh, big learning curve for me. For sure, as the EWS was evolving, I had to figure out where I stood in the EWS world, how to race the EWS, uh, how to calm down and restrict myself, <laughs> and um, be a part of the evolution of it. So as it was evolving in 2013, 14, 15, it was still evolving the format. It was still evolving the stages, the pedaling, the downhill, the bikes. It was a pretty pretty big learning curve for the industry, for the athletes, and uh yeah, it's, it's come to this point now where I think the EWS has kind of settled a little bit and now the e-bikes are, are evolving in the same kind of space. But a lot of, um, a lot of the guys you were racing against had uh, experience on the clock. Um, you obviously had experience in XC and maybe longer form downhill, but it seems like it's pretty natural showing that inexperience with the crashes of like, okay, it's a five-minute track. I'm going as hard as I can. It's a 15-minute track. Well, I'm fit. I can go as hard as I physically can, but uh, you know, you, you're racing against guys that had downhill experience, had other experience, gated experience. You know, your Jared Graves, all those guys. I remember, you know, a lot of the downhillers uh, normally would have retired, but then the CWS thing showed up, so they said, "Well, let me give that a crack." And they had a lot of race craft and race experience, which you clearly had to learn. Unfortunately, you were learning by hitting the ground, not learning by going. Okay, I was 22nd. How do I get to 18th? How do I get to 15th? So you almost had to have an intervention from the team, which is which is great of them. And 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 you know, all all teams out there do want their riders safe first and foremost. And then you you're investing in this rider. You want him around as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was it was really good of them for sure. I mean, looking back now, it was it was so green for everybody to uh, to see. And like at the time, we had a factory team there. We had Adam Craig was my teammate. He was doing really well. He was, you know, the the Super D gravity guy for the cross country and enduro setup. And he was someone I looked up to coming onto the team. I was like, "Well, Adam's wow, he's my teammate. Like this is pretty cool." And uh, it's just it was just wild. Like looking back now, it's in hindsight. If I had someone there guiding me, like I don't think I would have crashed that day. And I, I can see that a lot now in athletes. Like when they get all carried away and they don't get the results on the first day, you can almost see the writing on the wall prior. And you can see, well, this this dude or girl's gonna she's gonna have a massive hugey if she doesn't like calm down. Or like they're going down the wrong path and they're just so stressed out because they're focused on the wrong thing. And I can see that now from my experience at the time. I was just so green and so keen to do whatever and I didn't have that I didn't have that restrictor. I just wanted to send it and then put me on the world circuit and then no one knew who I was, which made it even worse. <laughs> trying to prove yourself, I guess, huh? Yeah, trying to prove myself, trying to prove that I belonged on the team, trying to prove that like you know, I belonged at the front and uh I the results were warranted and justified. You know, I remember having a conversation with the Oregon Enduro guys in 2012, I think it was. And, and I was sat near Brian Lopes and a couple of other guys and Adam Craig and in front of the promoters. And there, we were trying to ask them if I can start amongst the top 10, because they put me in the forties or fifties or whatever, just out the back. 
and Adam was vouching for me and then like, well, why? Why would we put you in 10th or 5th? Are you going to beat this guy, Anthony Diaz? Are you going to beat Brian Lopes? Are you going to beat Adam Craig? And I just like stone cold straight face said yes and didn't giggle, didn't smirk. Are you going to beat Brian Lopes? Absolutely. Are you going to beat Adam Craig? Yes. And they kind of giggled and I didn't giggle. And they're like, okay. And they started me 10 or whatever. And I did beat them. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, big, yeah, big self-belief. But it is that, you know, coming from Australia, having to work for it, South Africa as well, you you kind of feel you have to, to prove yourself. So EWS, once you kind of found your feet and maybe the format did, do you... I struggled understanding what EWS was or if I believed, you know, a lot of riders were pre-riding these tracks. Like, do you think the format now is better? Have they got like a grasp on the fairness of it? Because I went and dabbled in one or two, you know, just for fun from a downhill side. And I was like, it's clear as day. If I'm only going to get one or two runs, if anyone pre-rides any of these tracks, I mean, the minute minute you start getting over eight runs on a track, you're going to have an advantage. For sure, and it's it's something you can't get away from. You know, everywhere we go, someone's going to have an advantage. You go to Finale, and there's a certain group of people that have a d- distinct advantage. A few years ago, through you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, I think 17, we stopped it. We were it was unlimited practice, but you could only pretty much get maybe two runs of practice per um, per stage. So for me. I needed those two runs. So I put the work in to make sure that I was fit enough yes. to do those two runs. Let me just shut this before the bird Avery just drowns us out. <laughs> um, so I needed those two runs. So I made sure I put the work in to be fit enough to handle that load. Um, now it's only one run. That was like, for me, that was quite difficult. But for someone like Sam um, and other athletes around the place, that was that was perfect. They could look for different lines and I don't know if it necessarily equaled the field out, but it, um, it changed the game. You know, you couldn't just ride the track. You would session parts of the track now and you would walk like walking is a hot topic with enduro, um, to walk or not to walk. And Sam walks a lot and Sam won for, you know, a lot of years. So all of a sudden walking was the answer. Jack has now been walking some bits, not walking other bits, so now it's like a bit of a funky topic. Martin doesn't really walk and he still wins. Um, so it's, yeah, it's always, it's always been a hot topic and an interesting one that's never really worked itself out. Um, never really worked itself out, but it, uh, I, yeah, I would say it's kind of equal now. A lot of the places that we go to are reasonably equal and the racing's fair. Um, there is always, always a local wherever you go. Like Scotland at the moment has a local named Reese Wilson, <laughs> who's a weapon. <laughs> so for anyone else, it's it's annoying, but, you know, that's his local. Um, you go to Finale and as equal as it is, there is a couple of people that train there a lot. So that's technically their local. Uh, when I was living in Whistler and where Jesse lives right now in Squamish, like Whistler is their local. So it's not necessarily they know the bikes, but they, sorry, they know the trails, but they know the terrain. The terrain, yeah. And you know what it's say, like they racing, know the terrain racing at your rides. place. You know how it rides, you know what it's like in the wet, you know what it's like when it gets rough, you know how to hop and pop and bounce off all those roots and loam and commitment and all that stuff. So that makes a big difference. Plus you're comfortable. Um, but yeah, the, the latest format I think is somewhat equal. Um, it's going through a different 
transition at the moment because the stages are smaller, the liaisons are slightly different. Um, so we'll see how that shakes out for next year. But through 17, 18, 19, um, we scrapped the two-run rule and made it one run. And the biggest emphasis for that rule change was just to preserve the tracks because when there was six or 700 entrants and everyone was going down the trail twice and then racing twice, the tracks were like destroyed. So that was the biggest thing to try and save the tracks. We were leaving venues and the courses were just absolutely destroyed to the point where no one could even ride them once we left. So you go to these cool venues and break in brand new trails and try and leave a legacy in like an Ainsa in Spain or even Whistler, um, Ireland and, and all that stuff. And once we'd leave, it actually left quite a bit of taste in everyone's mouth because the tracks were so wrecked that it took all the funding and the effort from the local club or promoter to go and fix the trails again to have people ride it. So that was a big push to why we went to one run. Um, did it equalize it out? Probably not. Probably made it worse, you know, for locals and people who had an advantage. But I don't know if we're ever going to get away from that, you know. No, no, fair enough. And it's, uh, yeah, I think it's more prominent at an EWS that someone might have an advantage. And like you say, it's just how it how it goes. There's always going to be some locals. I think people, once you have a bit of experience on the circuit, you've been to the venues before, it starts equalizing. So every year that you race, it's a little bit more equal. And the cream always rises a crop throughout a whole season. But I did hear you talk a little bit about, so you talk about walking, preparation. I would assume some of the listeners are passionate racers themselves or want to do well at their local one. You spoke a little bit about having an issue with a GoPro. So GoPros are very popular uh, for good reason, and they can help, but maybe depends on the rider. But you had an issue with a GoPro and then felt you were more present in some of your training runs. Can you speak to maybe your theory and, and strategy going forward and maybe the guy at home that feels he has to rely on a GoPro and watching it over and over instead of maybe being very present and, and, and going with how he feels on that track for practice? For sure. I think I think the whole GoPro scenario definitely uh, it covers up a lot of your preparation and focus. Um, when, you, when you go into a practice run and you GoPro it, um, I, I fell victim of this. I was just relying on the GoPro. So I wasn't even really paying attention to the trail or the track coming at me. I was just, all right, I'll watch, I'll do this thing. I'll ride this thing. I'll look at it. I'll look at the GoPro later. So at one event, um, I can't exactly remember where it happened a few times, you know, GoPros, they shit the bed. They, they crash, the batteries fail. It, it happens. Um, when that happened, I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't have any footage of any of my practice stages. So it forced me to sit down and like go through the trail as much as I could in my head. And it really made me focus on the trail that was in front of me rather than the actual footage, you know, which, which uh, helped my racing big time, big time. That was a big lesson uh, that I learned that, you know, I, I learned that uh, I had to focus on the trail in front of me and the GoPro was the backup. The GoPro was the backup to see a different line or see something I'd missed or, uh, you know, just look at later. But my practice and my focus was the trail in front of me and I was going to look for lines and try lines during my practice run and my my time. Look at the GoPro later. So, yeah, that was a big lesson that I learned for sure. So for anyone at home, like, you know, the GoPro is your backup. GoPro is going to show you like a double jump that maybe popped up that wasn't there when you practiced it or an inside line or an outside line or 
it will give you that ability to look at other lines that you didn't necessarily ride that might be there that might help you in the race run because the main line might deteriorate. It might be muddy. It might be that might turn into a massive bog hole. So you might want to look at your GoPro when you wake up the next day and it's been raining all night. Well, that bit's going to be a nightmare. How am I going to negotiate that? So you look back at your GoPro and you can see, oh, there's an outside line. I can run that bank. I can run this high line, which will get me in the grass and out of the bog, you know, that kind of scenario. So, yeah, that um, it was something we all fall victim to, <laughs> you know, every single one of us. And, and uh, it's really beneficial not to rely on your GoPro. I mean, the GoPro is an amazing tool and it's definitely helped us, especially having one run, one practice run. Having that GoPro is key for sure. And it will help you and it will be a benefit, but it is not the be all to end all. You know, you can really learn a lot by taking your time, going that little bit slower than you think. I think a lot of people, and again, I'm victim of this, um, when they drop into practice runs, they think they have to go fast straight away. So they have to practice fast because like, if I don't feel fast here, I'm not going to feel fast in race time. Well, when you drop in for your race time, more often than not, adrenaline is going to kick in and you're going to go fast regardless. So if you practice slower or if you practice a little bit less than what you're, uh, what you're used to, you'll see a lot more, you'll save a lot of energy. More often than not, you'll also absorb a lot more information than what you will if you just drop in hell for leather, start swapping through some rough section. <laughs> you know, it really, it really could make a big difference for your race run because remember, it's practice. No one cares how fast you're going in practice. And as much as a lot of us get drunk on the idea of photographers or someone like Sven telling you you're looking fast or you need, your ego needs that little boost, um, you've got to focus on what's in front of you and your plan, your plan of what you want to achieve for that race. That's super interesting because I would have thought, okay, in downhill you get, you know, maybe five or six and then a timed run, then two or three, then a quali and the next day one or two. So by the time race run comes, you have hit things. I'm the type of rider. I've hit every section at 100%. Sam Hill, Aaron Gwynn, they might have a little bit extra in the tank. Depends on the person. So everyone's different. But I would have thought in enduro you want to ride like pretty quick to see if you blow out a turn or not at race pace. But you're saying that the thought process and the strategy, so with you and the top guys have learned, it's more critical to not go at 100%, even though at race pace you might blow out a turn, but you're kind of really getting a better gauge of the course by toning it down in practice i think so happening yeah yeah and a lot of the time by the time we get to the race run anyway the course is blown out and dramatically different so what we see in practice compared to what we race in our race run for for a downhill you get to see that evolution of the course you get to see the lines develop you get to see the rocks pop up the roots the duffy lines the corners blow out when we practice that course on thursday and we show up on saturday or sunday afternoon you know there's been a thousand tracks down it. So that corner <laughs> that or that particular line that you took, it might not be there. So like that comes to your preparation and your skill set and your training um, prior. So you have to rely on that. So when you when you're practicing on the Thursday or the Friday, you have to remember that it's gonna change. And that's a big part of Enduro. That's a big skill set that comes with racing Enduro. Um, and a, a skill set that I had to learn. You know, you can't be so reliant. I remember the first couple of downhill races I did, in particular Sea Otter. Like you show up to Sea Otter or any other downhill race, and when someone tells you you can do three runs or four runs, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is a dream. <laughs> like I can, I know where everything is. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's it definitely is beneficial. I mean, everyone's got their own flavor. Everyone's going to tell you one thing or another, but you can definitely absorb a lot more information by taking it easy and trusting trusting that you don't have to ride that fast in practice to race. Like when you show up to race race day, race day is race day. And when you show up, like we're all guilty of it. When you get in that starting line, you hear those beeps, three, two, one, bang, you sprint out of that gate and you just start attacking everything. So the, knowing, having a good idea of the course will help in that scenario. You're not going to know every single corner. Like it's rare for anybody to go to a race and like say, you, they, can, they can say every corner, rock for rock or root for root. Um, I mean, people out there do it for sure. And it's something that we all practice and train and, and we write notes and we do visualization, visualization techniques and meditation and try our best to remember the courses. But, you know, for the e-bike ones now, we have 12 different downhill tracks to, to remember. Um, and some of them we might overlap, but the time, if we race those first couple of downhill tracks in the morning, then we race it again in the afternoon, it's totally different. So they trying to have with the the EWS e bike 12, 12, potentially twelve twelve potentially twelve races or twelve stages throughout a race weekend potentially. Yep. Yeah. So it's like a bunch of different loops. So it'll be one loop of three or four stages, and then you'll do another loop of another three or four stages, and then on the third loop, a lot of the time, or in the last couple of races that we had we would repeat the first loop. So we do those again. Um, in Scotland, I think it was 15 stages they had there. Uh, in Switzerland, we had nine and in finale we had 12. So that's, um, that's a lot of stages to remember. But finale was nine, nine individual stages and only three were, three were repeated. Yeah. I mean, that then speaks to your point. You've got to be so adaptable. And I was going to ask, is there ever a time that you can remember all of it? Are you spending, all hours of the night trying to go through GoPro or do you have to really trust that everyone's in the same boat? You're not going to memorize it all. Hopefully you're going to know the key sections or the turns that you, when you said go a bit slow, I'm thinking, cool. And at least I can gauge and say this turn is going to blow out by Sunday. So that's a turn I need to remember and be aware of but The rest, the courses in front of me, you've got to ride on your instinct. You've got to ride on that experience, which doesn't come easy. And you've learned that a lot of the time, the hard way. Um, and and now you fast forward into the e-bike series that they're trying to develop. So it could be nine races, it could be twelve. We don't, you don't know where it's going to go, and they don't know. So, yeah, catch me up on. Um, you know, everyone went into the the big COVID lockdowns and the chaos of the world, and then you, you come out of that, and and you know, there's an e-bike series. So talk to us about the transition to focusing on e-bike and, and the challenges with that. That was, it was definitely a, a big transition. You know, the end of 2019, I had a pretty, I had a pretty rough 2019 mentally and physically. And we had a bunch of bike changes, um, had a bunch of bike changes amongst the team. And we were going between a 27.5, we're going between a mullet, we're going between a, a 29er. Um, it was a really tough year to adapt and the races were hard. Um, anyway, long story short, it was rough. <laughs> so going into 2020, I got offered an opportunity to move to e-bikes with Giant and uh, focus on the future. And um, that was really, really cool. I mean, my ego probably took it the hardest 
And it was like, what do you mean e-bikes? Like, I'm not finished racing. I don't want to give up my EWS racing. What are you talking about? We've just, I just got a sixth in Whistler and we finally got a, a good bike and, you know, we can do this. And then now you want me to go and race e-bikes? So that, that took me a little bit to, uh, to kind of understand what this opportunity actually meant and what the, what the potential of it was. Um, and it wasn't a decision I, I took lightly. For sure. Um, I definitely thought about it a lot. I seeked out a lot of advice from a bunch of different people throughout the industry and at home and in friends and family and blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, so I took it on, started training, preparing, going hard for something we didn't really know what was what it was going to be. We we're just trying to figure it out. And then uh, COVID hit. And, um, yeah, COVID hit and just squashed everything. So, you know, it just you'd put all this training in and then all of a sudden – uh, everything was put on hold. So, um, yeah, what what was I going to do then? Well, I, I had a motocross plan lined up. I was going to go back to racing motocross for the winter in Australia and and do that until further notice. And then COVID shut that down, so I started playing golf a lot, and that took my mind off a lot of things. Um, and then racing kicked off towards the end of 2020, and it was literally days before I was due to fly out for the EWS season. And um, it just wasn't. It just wasn't clear. <laughs> if I if I had a went to Europe, it wasn't clear if I was going to be able to come home. Mm. Um, so I had to make the the really really tough call not to go, and that jeopardized everything. You know, jeopardized my salary, jeopardized my contract, jeopardized this opportunity I had to race e bikes. Um, it was really really hard, and I lost a lot of night's sleep uh, trying to figure that out. Um, Anyway, fast forward to 21 and it all started kicking back off again. Uh, we started racing. I did a lot of work here in Australia to develop the e-bike racing and put my hand up to try and develop e-bike courses for the national championships, uh, really get some e-bike categories with different flavors happening around the country, uh, the EXC national championships. So I kind of, you know, I had I'd been given this opportunity to race e-bikes, but there wasn't that much racing happening. So I took it upon myself to like make the phone calls and be, be that dude that was pushing the e-bike racing. And that was an, another tough scenario because no one was showing up to race e-bikes at the time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I was going to these races and you're racing like the older crowd who are just there to have fun and they've got an e-bike because they want to just enjoy their riding and not really that competitive, but their kids are racing. And then I would show up on the start line with them to race and I'm there to race, full factory kit, ready to go. <laughs> so that was Being uh, that guy that was kind of hard on yeah i was that guy <laughs> i was definitely that guy um but i had to because if i didn't then they wouldn't bring any exposure to it and it wouldn't bring any any uh limelight to it and it wouldn't tell people outside of those that were there um that e-bike racing is a thing and i did it for my own my own benefit i wanted the racing so i put my hand up to make the racing happen and i would show up and do the races and beat the drum and be the e-bike guy. And, um, yeah, it, it kind of hopefully it had a pretty decent impact. And um, I was very relieved to make it over to Europe in t- this year <laughs> to race the World Championships and race the uh, the EWS E-Season that finally kicked off. Yeah, and uh, talked about the, the, the EXC World Champs and uh, you're a bigger guy. I guess, yeah, I just don't know how it's going to be fair. Um, and I like fair if you're going to go racing. So there's going to be those challenges. 
Yeah, that would have been interesting for me, Josh. So you do make it over to Europe, and it's the EXC World Champs. So it's more cross country than an enduro. Yeah, I was always I'm I'm quite interesting how it's going to be fair, how they find their feet. You know, what's your, what's your view and all that? It's definitely it's definitely a tough scenario. You know, the power to weight ratio is real. I did I didn't really want to believe it um, going over there, and I was like, nah, like it doesn't matter how little they are. I'm super strong. I'm super fit. Um, I was adamant that like that wasn't going to matter. But as soon as I got over there and the and uh, you know we did some EXE World Cups in June. And uh, we were going up the start loop. There was a three-kilometer start loop, which was a pretty excessive climb. Three kilometers, three hundred meters of vert. Um, it really just sent me right out the back. So everyone ripped past me, like all the girls, all the dudes, and I was pedaling as hard as I possibly could, and just was going nowhere, absolutely nowhere. Um, so that was quite a rude shock. It showed me that the power to weight thing was, you know, real. When I got over to World Champs in um, August. That time between June and August, I made a focus of changing my training program a little bit. It was help, helped by the fact that we got a brand new bike from Giant, which was dramatically easier to ride, and I didn't have to rely on my strength and mass um, to ride it. And so I dropped a bunch of weight from June till till then, and then I just you know focused on my one minute power, focused on my ability to produce high numbers, and uh, just pretty much prepared myself to go into the hurt box and stay there. <laughs> so. Um, you know, you're never going to compete against a 65 kilo dude or someone who's under 60 kilos. Like it's just, I'm 85 kilos or 83 kilos when I was racing. Um, if I get down to 80 kilos or 78 kilos, happy days. But those guys are 58 kilos. And I think Nico Vuillot is maybe 65 or 63 kilos, you know, so they're, they're just littler dudes. Um, the power to weight thing is something we're talking about at the moment. And it's going to be a huge evolution for the sport. Um, moving forward, it's going to be like, we don't know where that's going to fit. Um, one thing that's saving us is that Nico's still beating us on the descents. <laughs> so he is smaller than us and uh, he is going uphill faster than us. But at the same time, he's still putting six seconds into us on a three-minute downhill. And he's still going around corners faster than anyone else in the world. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to you've got to be able to go uphill faster, but you've also got to go around the corner faster. So that's kind of one handy um scenario and and uh it is a positive moving forward how are we going to get around the weight debate not too sure (laughs) i'm not too sure it's going to be an evolution and it's going to be a scenario that just has to uh has to play itself out it's going to come back to some bike development from the manufacturers you know that's a big talking point as well it's probably like you know a whole nother tangent we can go on between you know the yamaha motors the bosch the shimano uh, the speed limits, the power outputs, the battery charges. There's a big, big dark world out there that I think everyone's going to have to dip into sooner rather than later. And it's going to become an interesting part of e-bike racing. Um, because at the end of the day, we're not just we're not just dealing with bikes anymore. We are dealing with bikes, but we also have this electrical software. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a big dark hole. It's definitely going to be a big part of the evolution of these bikes. It's going to be a big part of the racing, um, you know, yeah, just just doubling back to the to the weight thing. Like, I think that's that's an inevitable inevitable part of it, and it's going to be something that us athletes have to figure out. You know, I'm like I mentioned, I'm a bigger dude. There's only going to be a certain point that I can get to. Um, hopefully, there is a couple of power numbers out there that we've done some calculations to get. Not to get too geeky about it, but if you looked at the one minute power number or under, if you're a 55 or 65 or an 85 kilo dude, you can put out a similar 
amount of power for one minute. So that puts your power to weight um, ratio at around the 8.5 to 10 watts per kilo. Now they, we're talking big numbers. Like for, for myself, that's putting out anywhere from 750 to 1,000 watts for a minute, which is pretty big. Uh, for a little guy, they're like 500 to 600 watts. Um, so when you transfer that data to a race scenario, that means if you have on a climbing stage no more than 45 seconds to a minute of sustained pedaling climbing, um, you should be able to somewhat kind of work the course out to calculate it so it is reasonably fair. Um, anything over a minute and the course, the, the times just blow out. Like anyone who's smaller than you is just going to gap you because they're 20 or 30 kilos lighter. They can hold the limit of the motor so much easier for so much less power. So, um, yeah, the, the, the dark world of the software and the bike development on the engine side is going to be something that's going to develop over the next couple of years. And it's, it's going to be hopefully not a, a critical part of the racing, but I think it's going to be an, an, an inevitable part of the racing. Um, you know, manufacturers like our manufacturer of Yamaha, Bosch, uh, Shimano, it's, it's going to become part of the racing and it's going to become a software battle and a software race. Um, and hopefully it evolves. So that's not the answer. Um, but at the moment it's a pretty, pretty clear scenario that some, some brands, some bikes, their bikes are just better. So in one side, it's going to make the bikes better, which is great for the consumer. Um, but on the other side, as a racer, it's, yeah, it's definitely hard to, you know, compete <laughs> sometimes. Well, well, it's almost like going back to motorsport, you know, it's not, not always the talent and the work, you know, there's sometimes the machines going to help. And we've definitely seen that in motocross, uh, cars, F1, all that sort of stuff. So that's pretty interesting. But e-bikes in general, uh, I mean, I've been pro them for a long time, even though I come from a purist background, but I love them. I mean, let's speak a little bit about the froth that you think e-bikes is putting back into the industry or new people getting into it. I see at the bike shop, I think this last two months, we sold more e-bikes than than normal bikes. If we could get our hands on them, we'd probably sell more. And it's either the husband bringing the wife in because she can't keep up with him and they want to ride together. So that's pretty cool. Or the uh, corporate that's a little bit more busy, but he realizes why he was riding and that's to get out into the mountains and have fun. Yeah, for sure. I think there was a there was quite a weird evolution of mountain biking for a while there, which was a direct result of enduro. <laughs> you know, we started we started making and selling and designing these bikes that were made for us, the EWS athlete, which were downhill tires, 160, 170 mil bikes, coil shocks, slack head angles. They were horrible to ride. <laughs> so for the for the average consumer to go and ride them, for us they were great. And they were perfect. And we could go and spend six or seven hours out in the hills and ride down anything we wanted as fast as possible. For the general consumer, it didn't quite translate. And I think it might have, this is just my opinion, but I think it might have burnt a lot of people out. It might have burnt a lot of mountain bike purists out because it just kind of make it a little bit, uh, it's just a little bit too much of a push to get out and enjoy it anymore. Um, and of course you could, but then e-bikes came along. You could do the same trails. You could do it at half the effort and you could do twice as many. So all of a sudden, it's it's almost a no-brainer. Um, yeah, like when, when the husbands come in or the wives come in and they want to get a bike for their husband who's a bit chubby and they want to come riding with them, you know, it's it's bringing so many more people into the sport. And um, yeah, of course, it's different. And yeah, the, the purists don't like it. 
because they're not earning their turns or whatever the, the cliche comment is. Um, but at the end of the day, they're buying bikes and it's fueling the industry. It's re, reinvigorating the industry. It's reinvigorating development. Um, look at all the stuff we're talking about now. Motor development, the bikes are evolving. They're still really heavy. That's a huge evolving process. Now we have a brand new racing discipline that everyone's talking about. It was the same conversation back in 2013, 2012. It's identical. Downhill and cross country and now enduro. And so many, the downhill and the cross country world were so offended that enduro was going to come in and take over and take our athletes. And obviously in the end, it wasn't the case. It actually strengthened our sport. It boosted it and it evolved the sport to a whole new level and saved the industry. Who knows? Maybe e-bikes are going to be the same now. They're going to not necessarily save the industry, but we're coming out of COVID. It's a pretty tough time. It's hard to get bikes. It's hard to get parts. Um, e-bikes are selling faster than they can make them. Uh, my parents, for example, they've, they've both got e-bikes now and my mum's got a, she had like a half e-bike and now she's super excited to get a full one. So now my dad's got one of my old rain e-bikes and now she wants a full one because she can't keep up. <laughs> Now, they're not going to go down and rip down the, the same trails that I am. They're not going to um, go and ride mountain bikes properly. But e-bikes have brought them a new hobby, a new enjoyment that they can go for a ride. Like they went and did 40Ks on the weekend and rode for a few hours and got a couple of coffees. And it was great. That wouldn't happen on regular bikes. So that opportunity to do so is is fantastic uh, all around the world. It's bringing, you know, I think us as mountain bike riders, when we see new people come in and riding e-bikes, it's it's a bit funny because we've been through those struggles and we've been through the slug and we've earned those turns and we've earned those trails. And now e-bikes are just ripping up the hill and doing those tracks and doing a bunch of them. And a lot of people get all grumpy, but we just just kind of zoom out a little bit and realize what they're doing for our sport. And it's um, it's great. Mountain bikes is um, the mountain bike industry has probably never been stronger or healthier amongst some of the toughest times the world's ever seen. Yeah, it's well said, Josh. And I totally agree. And if you zoom out and I mean, don't you want people to have fun? Don't you want people to experience? Yes. It took you hours to get up to the top of the hill and, and earn those turns. But at the end of the day, I mean, really, we're just trying to have a good time and expose people to uh, an amazing sport that's given you and I so much. So, I can understand the purist and, and the, the banter that goes with it. And South Africa as a nation is, they like to earn, earn their keep. And, um, yeah. you know, we've, mountain biking has become very popular because of the Cape Epic. And we've got a lot of these stage races. And uh, it's interesting when I show them my e-bikes, they just ride in the parking lot. But a lot of them know how good it is, but they just refuse to get on it because they kind of know once they get on it, there's no turning back. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So many of my friends here are the same. They are anywhere in the world, really. Everyone wants to ride one, but they know once they taste it, they don't want to go back because they can go and do four runs instead of two. They, if they've only got an hour of an afternoon, they can go and do all their favorite tracks and it's they're not going to come back a hot, sweaty mess. Um, they can enjoy it. And I think that's one of the one of the biggest things for me. Like, obviously, like we're professional athletes, so we have to be fit, we have to train, we have to, it's a job. But I can go and ride my e-bike just for fun now. Um, and that sounds really funny when you say it out loud and you say it to the general public. But you can go for a fun ride just to enjoy riding your mountain bike. You can go and explore those trails that you have, might not have explored before just for fun because it's not an extraordinary effort. You're not going to get stuck down there. And a, a cool thing that I've had recently is with the kids. 
you know, Eli's six and Remy's four and, and uh, I can take them up the bush now and enjoy some trails, but then we can do extra trails because I can tow him back up the road on my e-bike and just have fun with it. I'm not exhausted from ripping him back up the hill. And there is a training aspect, which is great, but um, we can just go and do that for fun. And I can tow him around and then he can do two laps maybe, or he can maybe do three laps, you know, instead of it only being a one lap wonder. So that is a cool aspect for, from even from my point of view that I think a lot of people are enjoying and, and uh, um, it's, it's evolving and building the industry. Uh, in a lot of positive ways. Do you, um, and the I'll, the reason I'm asking is people like, oh, you, I'm going to be unfit and no, you don't earn it. And I'm like, bullshit. If you decide you want to get fit on an e-bike, you can easily get fit on an e-bike, put it in the chilled mode, put it in the eco mode and, and ride for longer. So I know that if I wanted to really get fit, I could. And I think people, that's a misconception because you're going to ride more, you can ride more often a week. It's heavier coming down. But didn't I hear you say you're fitter now or you're using it more to train and you're still as fit or fitter? Oh, I'm, I'm dramatically fitter than I've ever been before. And I've got the power numbers to prove it. Um, you know, you can say that and emotionally and physically, you can feel fit and you can have bigger things at the gym, but all the numbers that I've had now, the, the quantifiable data as of this year have never, ever been bigger. I've never hit numbers close to 2,100 Watts before in a max sprint. I've had a threshold of 430 to 440 watts for 20 minutes. I've had a one-minute power of close to 800 watts, a 30-second power of closer to 1,200 watts. Um, there, there's some pretty big numbers that are comparable with some of the biggest athletes in our sport and the road, um, and that's from riding an e-bike. I don't really spend – I don't ride a regular bike at all these days. I could count on two hands the amount of times I've ridden a, uh, a retro or an analog or whatever they want to call it bike. Analog. Uh, over the last – <laughs> over the last couple of years um and I, I ride the road a little bit to work on those data numbers but i ride my e-bike and yeah if you do want to get fit then turn it down ride it like an e-bike but stretch out the motor the, and do the opposite ride it on full boost but go and do as many tracks as you can you know go and if you got one hour and that thing lasts one hour try and get two thousand meters of vert done in one hour you know, when you're doing a 4,000-meter day or a 3,000-meter vertical day, that's a lot. I don't care who you are. You know, our day in Switzerland, we raced, raced for 4,000 vertical meters. And then in Italy, we were on the bike at 8 o'clock, and we didn't get off the bike until 5 p.m. that night. And we were racing all day. So the, the fitness aspect, the bike's heavier, you're doing more. You know, there there is the, the you know, technically lazy side of it you can just rely on the motor just yeah, go you can like soft pedal it right yeah of course you can soft pedal it and you know what if that's what you want to do you go girl awesome go and have some fun you don't have to be sweaty you can just go and enjoy riding your mountain bike but if you do want to get fit an e-bike is just as capable as a regular bike for fitness and skill development and uh losing weight and all that kind of stuff you know there's um yeah it's just it's all in your head <laughs> really you know, if you're doing 1,500 meters worth of vertical and you're doing 30K or on a regular bike, you're only doing 15K and 700 vertical meters, you know, you're going to be doing twice as much work on that e-bike than what you are on a regular bike and having a lot more fun doing it. And I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not against regular bikes, of course. Like, they're fantastic, but that's that's my scene right now. It's my job and it's um, it's my obsession. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a no-brainer. 
Speaking of, uh, you mentioned in the head, um, you, you mentioned mindful practice, meditation, visualization. What, what does that look like to you specifically? Because we all hear the, the hype words these days, meditation, mindfulness, presentness, you know, visualization. But what, what does that look like for you on an off week or at home day to day? Is there some sort of practice? And then maybe at a race week, if you can let me speak about that, because maybe a listener can uh, try it or maybe add it as as a as a habit. For sure, I mean all those things we spoke about at, at the beginning of this uh, of this chat, like the crashes I've had and that um, bad habit of just sending it, like something would just click and I I wouldn't have any restriction and just be like I'm just going to go as fast as I possibly can and not stop. <laughs> <laughs> learning how to stop doing that was really hard. Uh, so I, I started working with a sports psych. Um, I started working with some people from Lululemon in Vancouver when I was there, um, some athlete development coaches and some mindfulness practicing coaches. This was back in 2016, uh, 2015, 2016. And they had a dramatic uh, effect on my, on my performance and my career. You know, at Enduro in particular, and downhill similar, it's a little bit more controlled and you can kind of control not necessarily control your headspace but you can have a set procedure to get you into that headspace and you can kind of control that environment a little bit for enduro you're out in the hills for seven days ah uh, seven days <laughs> well sometimes seven days seven hours you know um when you leave in the morning if you're focused in that same headspace as downhill which is super intense and and uh extremely difficult to get in that headspace to be focused for a downhill run if you stay in that space for seven hours you're going to explode <laughs> so the mindfulness and the meditation practices really became super beneficial and, and powerful for me to go in and out of that focus and and relaxed state so i could be pedaling up a liaison for an hour or two hours whatever and just be relaxed and okay and chat to my friends or my competitors or fans or just relax and enjoy the scenery and you know focus forward um and then when i get back to the stage start and i've got my one minute ready to go that's when i would like go back into my own headspace i'd do, do my breaths i'd focus on my surroundings i'd breathe from my head all the way down to my toes and i'd have my meditation and mindfulness practices that would help me get back into that state ready to focus on what's in front of me not what i've done not what's been happening, but what's happening in front of me now. And that took a lot of practice. It was a, a bunch of bunch of things like meditation, you know, not much, but like 10 minutes to 20 minutes a day, morning and night, um, throughout the middle of the day as well. Uh, mindfulness practices, like simple things, like having a music playlist that is a kind of set music playlist to get me in the right mood and a bunch of songs or playlists that would help me do that. Uh, that was one thing we worked with with my coach from from Lululemon. Um, little things like that that I worked on a lot. Um, and even now these days, like racing, it's the same thing. And now you've got more responsibilities, uh, kids, family, house, travel. Uh, that was that's even more important because when you carry all that, there's a lot going on. So you need certain tools like meditation or some mindfulness practices to help me alleviate that stress and focus on what's in front of me and not what's been happening prior. Um, and yeah, it's little things like apps, like Headspace, um, Lumosity, 
helps your your mind your mindset and it's a bit of brain training to help you uh help your decision making under duress and stress so that's another thing i work on a lot um yeah there's a, there's a lot of little things that I do throughout my entire week's worth of training that lead up to my ability to flick in between those zones when it comes to racing. No, thanks for sharing that. I was going to ask, I have a headspace and I haven't, I'll be dead honest since it's come up on here. I haven't made it a good enough, enough practice. And I think sometimes when you're racing, you're forced to reflect and see your weaknesses. Um, and it's fascinating because, I mean, everyone at home just thinks you ride a bike very well and you're gifted, but there's so much work, the training, the mental, dealing with the pressure, working with psychologists. I think thanks for sharing that. I think everyone can benefit from it from a day-to-day, be it a life coach, be it a psychologist, even when you're not going through shit, but you want to you wanna level up, be it in your job or your relationship. Um, yeah, I think that's fascinating, and I, I think it can only be a help. And it's really cool. Like, you know, it's, it sounds, it definitely sounds a bit wanky and there is a lot of like the big words and it's very popular to say this now and it's, it's trendy, you know, but when you do, if you're riding, for example, you're with your buddies or with your mates and we go to a bunch of like really cool locations, um, for, for us as athletes and for people traveling around and even people who work normal jobs and, and, have their nine to five or they're a landscaper or they're an accountant or like you said, they're a psychologist or whatever. Um, when you can take just a couple of seconds out and sit on a mountainside looking out over like a big viewpoint and you can just take those couple of minutes and use a couple of techniques to really just become part of that moment. And you can, you can hear things and, and it does sound, it does sound funny when you say it out loud, but when, when you can actually embrace that and take that on, it's really powerful and it's a really, really cool feeling. It helps you embrace the moment and, uh, you know, it's it's a little deep to say, but it's a, it's a constant problem of today's society that we're all looking to the future or looking behind us and we're so distracted with everything going on that we're missing what's in front of us. And, you know, for me right now, I have two little reminders downstairs that are six and four <laughs> to, to bring me back to earth and, and help me focus on what's in front of me. Because they're they're growing like crazy, and if I don't stop for a second and pay attention to what's in front of me, I'm going to miss it. And especially with how much I travel and train and race, and so that's uh, that's been a, a big thing for me to to learn how to do that. That's been a powerful um, tool just for my life, for my career, for my family, um, and it's just a really great feeling when you can when you can do that. You know, you can sit on a beach, and uh, you know you can sit on a beach and sit in the sand and look at the water and yeah, it can be great. You can feel the breeze, but when you actually engage in that moment and then you feel every particle of sand and then you can feel the waves and you can feel the wind coming and it's a really cool feeling. Yeah. Really, really cool. I encourage everyone to give it a crack and you know, yeah, you might not like it and it does take time. Don't just give it one crack. I mean, give yourself a couple of goes at it. It's actually quite hard to learn. If you tried to learn how to juggle and you've never juggled before, you're not going to be able to juggle straight away. <laughs> so it's the same skill set. It takes a bit to figure it out. Your brain's really powerful and your mind's really, really wild. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's eerie because I'm actually reading a book from Eckhart Tolle. It's his old one, Power of Now. And I'm actually in that process now of, of trying to really be conscious about all these distractions. So you guys listening now, probably listening potentially while driving or 
Maybe you're doing the dishes while listening to a podcast. So I, I like to do the gardening or clean the garage. I'm always stimulated. I like to educate myself, but it's a dangerous place. If you don't create just, it doesn't even take that much space to get into that now. And like you said, on the beach, you there, Josh. No, all good. Yeah, so, and and it's it's a beautiful thing when you even get yourself to do it a little bit and you take that little bit of time because all these social media, it's all, it's designed by way smarter people than any of us to addict us, to distract us from the now, from sometimes the pain, sometimes the struggles you're going through. But though that simple act of being on the beach but not looking at social media or not posting and actually being there with your friend or your wife or with your kids. I mean, you would know now. You're probably slapped with it. Your kids might even start realizing, if you, I've got to do a few emails you know, while I'm looking after the kids. I've heard parents say, my son came to me and said, Dad, if you would just listen and put your phone down. I mean, if a six-year-old kid or a young kid is aware that you're distracted, that's a dangerous place. And everyone's busy, but it's almost like we've got to create space for the the tasks and the mundane shits a lot of it has to be done but in between it it's amazing when you are able to and i'm bad very bad but you know if i go walk the dog sometimes i'm like why am i taking the phone and i leave it at home and then i'm actually present on on the walk and i know it sounds hippie and and woohoo but i mean what other moment is there but the now you know and that's why i wanted to dig into it because i know you've been speaking about it and i think to race at a high level, you speak about flow state or this, but to have the best races, you're often in the now. You're not thinking. You're just, you're feeling, you're being. You've, you've done all the work, all the past is done, and you're just in that moment going as hard as you can. It is an amazing feeling, I think. Oh, it's, it's probably the, the best feeling. And <laughs> to be honest, it's probably the worst feeling you could ever have. <laughs> if you've never achieved that flow state, you've never had that race where time slows down and everything's easy and, you know if you've never felt that it's probably the best thing that could ever happen to you because once you feel that it's like you forever chase it again and you forever want to replicate it because it is the best feeling you could ever have and a lot of us you know you've had it i've had it we've when when that happens it results in great things it results in podiums it results in wins it's it results in not just a great sensation but it's uh it's also that proving to yourself like well you know we, we can do it like we go through a lot of struggles as athletes and when you don't perform you obviously get down on yourself and you can get not necessarily depressed but a lot of people get depressed and you you go into a dark little space um and when you're chasing constantly chasing that flow state you know you need some tools to get away from that and little practices like you just said like going for a walk with the dogs without taking your phone um it's not it's not quite a it doesn't always have to be such a focused thing to find that mindfulness state or that meditative state. You know, you can, it can be as simple as going for a bike ride without headphones or music or like just going for a ride in the woods, in the bush, in the forest, just with yourself. It's quite scary, to be honest. <laughs> like to go and spend an hour or two hours just with your thoughts, it, you, man, you, you just, you run wild. Um, you know, it can be as simple as that. Go for a walk without your phone. Go, go, Don't look at your phone when you go to the pub. You go to the pub for a beer and dinner and you're there with friends. Get everyone to put their phone away and talk to each other. You know, talk to your wife. Talk to your girlfriend. Talk to your kids. Obviously, we have to be on our phones these days. Like us as, um, well, a little disco light. 
us as athletes and as presenters and professionals, we have an obligation to be on social media. We have an obligation to do what we're doing now. We're like, we want to do this for fun, but it's also an obligation to do it for our sponsors and supporters. So we're never going to get away from that. But um, finding little tools and tips to, to help you deal with that and, and regulate it somehow is helps, uh, helps us, helps our headspace and helps our future development and focusing on the now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I heard an, uh, a way of describing it as mental fitness, not mental health because it might have like a negative connotation. But, you know, we work on our physical and you work on your equipment. But then, you know, some people like Greg refuse to go to psychologists, but I, I think he's wired almost a bit different. and He's got a lot of experience and he's figured out his way to get into flow. But someone like you or I, I've been to a psychologist. I, I'm, I'm willing to work on that, develop it. You can always be better. Greg could be better. You know, even though he's known as one of the best writers under pressure and what is dealing with pressure? Well, that's being in the now, you know, sticking to your processes, sticking to what you can control, not worrying that you're about to drop into a world championship run in front of your home crowd. And what are all my friends going to think if I botch this race? You know, that's not present. He's not in the moment, you know, and that's just a super dumbed down version. But I think it's great what you said, like, it doesn't have to be meditation where you sit in a room quietly and and either use headspace or or focus on your breath. It could be mountain biking for an hour, and that's the beauty of it because you get in nature and and that is a powerful tool as well, like you say. But away from the distractions of even music or even a podcast or whatever to pass the time, you know. So uh, yeah, I challenge us, and I'll go on that journey with you because that's my new challenge to myself is is to embrace the now, to embrace what sometimes sucks, boredom. And we're not bored these days, that's for sure. Man, boredom, I just come out of two weeks hotel quarantine coming back from Europe. And uh, I made a really big effort not to get a trainer, an indoor trainer, not to do home workouts at the hotel. And uh, to try and embrace that that space and like be okay with sitting still, you know, as an athlete, you, you rarely get an opportunity to spend 14 days not working out without being injured. The most break any of us ever have is when we're injured. And when we come home from an off season or into an off season, it's not like you ever really just sit still. You, you always go riding, you go hiking, you go running, you go to surfing, you go motocross riding. It's always packed. And I, I made a concentrated effort this particular quarantine to take advantage of that scenario to sit still. <laughs> let my let my mind run let myself think have take that time to think about uh the racing you know think back about what what happened how can we be better what what can we do to the bike think about uh what the future does look like you know think about my contract think about the development of some younger riders what what does that look like you know how do we develop the next generation of talent how how do we take someone who's 13 or 15 now and by 2032, when the Olympics come back to Australia, how can we turn them into Australia's next Olympian? You know, taking the time to think about a lot of stuff like that was actually really difficult. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I mean, was... it's, it's so much easier said than done. So what did that look like? Did you journal a bit of it? Did you write it down? Did you turn your phone on flight mode? Did you actually block out distractions and force yourself to deal with that like uncomfortableness? Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a quite a <laughs> a, uh, a mix match of the two worlds because you'd wake up in the morning, you'd have your breakfast, and you'd 
you talk to people, you FaceTime, you look on Instagram, Facebook, Messenger, WhatsApp, emails, whatever. Most of the morning, by 10 o'clock, your phone's dead because you've been on your phone for four hours. So then you, you put it down and it's like, I don't want to look at my phone anymore. So I turn my telly off, my phone would be dead and it'd be turned off charging. So I just sit there and journal and sit there and write thoughts down. I'd write down calculations about power to weight numbers. I'd write down development processes. I'd write down course ideas for different locations, um, training programs for a junior rider, uh, sit in silence for an hour or two hours. Like just look out the window with nothing else on, no music, no telly, no phone, no, no nothing. Just look out the window, look at what's going on in the street below, look at the sky, just sit there in silence, which was bizarre. <laughs> but it got easier as it went on. And, uh, and you know, now I'm back home. Um, I'm flat out, train. I'm starting to train again. You know, we've got the Australian Championships coming up at the end of December. So now I'm going to turn my attention to be prepared for that. I'm home with the kids. They're back into school. The wife's working. So you're back into a pretty full-on routine of training, of dadding, of being a husband, looking after the house, mowing the lawn, trying to figure out when I can play golf. Um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. So that two weeks isn't going to happen again. <laughs> so as hard as it got and as hard as it was, and uh, it definitely dragged on, you catch yourself thinking like, oh, man, how am I going to get through this? But then you just embrace it, you know, embrace it. Just just take it on, just figure it out. It's a pretty rare opportunity to have that scenario happen without being injured and just sit down and, and uh, rest, properly rest. And as hard as it was, it who knows, maybe it was the best thing that could happen coming out of a season. Because now I'm refreshed and ready to go and excited to ride and enjoying riding my bike and enjoying the process of developing a new training program heading into 2022. Just signed a two-year deal with Giant to focus on e-bikes again moving forward, which is fantastic. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all exciting times coming out of quarantine and, and I don't feel like I need a rest. I feel like I'm ready to go. Well, uh, I think that's a fitting way to end this, Josh. This has been so fun. I could go go for hours, but I know it's getting getting on there your time, and I've actually got to get ready for an e-bike ride this afternoon with the boys. So uh, where can the the listener follow you along? So follow on my Instagram mainly, uh, at Josh Carlson underscore underscore. You can also check out The Spoken Trail on my Instagram and on my YouTube Plus, it has its very own Instagram page um, at The Spoken Trail. So that'll be uh, a bunch of helmet cam footage from Australia. Um, it'll be some stuff popping up from Europe when I was over there. And it's just myself commentating and chatting and having a bit of fun going down the trail. So it's a little bit different to your standard GoPro run. Um, it shows off the trails in my area, uh, the trails that I'll be traveling to around, around Australia over this summer. Um, so check that out if you're looking for a bit of content to watch and switch off or have your own little mindful moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for everyone following and thanks needles for having me on here. And um, yeah, it's exciting times heading forward into e-bikes and uh, you know, being a part of another big evolution in, in mountain biking and in, in the industry, I feel pretty fortunate to be a part of the first wave of enduro, you know, be at the first ever EWS race in 2013 um, I think I was chatting to Jack Moyer the other day and he's maybe done eight EWS races or 12, I think he said, and uh, I've done 53 of them. So to realize that and then realize I'm stepping into a new discipline is, is pretty cool. And I think it's, it's um, 
yeah, I feel pretty pretty honoured and and proud to be to be taken on that journey and and uh, seeing seeing where it takes me. No, thanks, Josh. This was awesome. And one last thing before you guys go: if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. Leave us hopefully a five star rating and review. I read all those reviews. It's awesome getting them. If you got any feedback, you want to send me a message, I get all those messages. I try to respond to them all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun journey so far. So until the next one, stay well.